0: Welcome to So Dead, one mother of a podcast. I'm Jen Carpenter.
1: And I'm Danny Fairman. Happy True Crime Tuesday. And happy Taco Tuesday, Deadheads. We've done a lot of talking lately about shitty men. (laughs) There are just so many of them out there. So many. (laughs) Um, But it is only fair that we do an episode dedicated to shitty
0: women. Which is not us. No. Or any of you, hopefully. Yeah. Today, we're going to tell you about two Michigan women who did the unthinkable took the lives of their own children. Uh, The worst. The worst.
1: Um, So there is a lot of information on the case that I'm going to do. Um, Not only did I read, I think, every single article online about it and every newspaper clipping I could find, but I searched social media accounts. I watched an episode of Diabolical on the ID
0: channel. I love that show.
1: Do you? Yes. I bought this episode because I don't have the ID channel. So I just How do you went and live?
0: It. I don't know. I don't have oxygen. It stresses me
1: out. See, I just, if something sounds interesting by the feedback that other people have, I just go and buy it. Yep. Which is dumb because it's a waste of money. But I have so much on Netflix and Hulu. Yeah. To suffice. Um, But I definitely feel like I fell down a rabbit hole on this one. It's so
0: easy to do. So
1: easy to do, especially when it's... And I don't want to say fascinating because I think that glorifies it, but this is so disgusting. It's a train wreck. I think
0: these ones are very hard. You know, we're both mothers. um, So there's nothing that we wouldn't do to protect our children. Right. So the idea of a mother actually harming her children is just something we can't wrap our heads around. So, like you said, if it's something you don't understand, you want to learn about it as much as possible. So, that's probably. All right. But I'm going to give off
1: my sources real quick. Okay. If that's cool with everybody. That's cool with me. Um, So, if you're bored with those, fast forward a couple seconds. Just a couple. Here I am. Um, So, I did watch the Diabolical episode on the ID channel. It was season two, episode six, and it is called Control Freak. Oh. (laughs) That right there tells it to, you know. Um, I did get some information from Facebook pages. Okay. Which sounds bizarre. Hey. Um, but you really get a lot of yeah. who that person was when you look at that mm-hmm, stuff. Absolutely. I mean, that's totally Facebook stalking, but I did it. Um, I read a lot of articles from the Detroit Free Press, and they were all by um, Marlon Walker and Christina Hall. I okay. think I read every single article by Christina Hall. Yeah. CNN.com um, by Jethro Mullen. Yeah, that's about it. Okay. I mean, I'm sure there were about 100 from Christina, so, yeah, yeah. we'll get that. <laughs> she okay. was on this. Okay. Yeah. So here we go. Um, Ramsey Scribo was born on May 10th, 1981. He lived in St. Clair Shores, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. According to his Facebook page, he had many friends and was well-liked. He played softball for a local recreational team as a third baseman and had a general love for sports. Ramsey attended Wayne State University, where he earned his degree in accounting. He got a job quickly after graduation, and to his mother's excitement, had the appearance of success. One night when he was 22, he was out with some friends and had Too much to drink. Um, He fell and he hit his head so hard that he had to seek medical treatment. no. Head injuries are not ever a good start. Never never a good sign. Um, Family members noticed immediately that Ramsey was acting differently in the days following his accident. He just didn't seem like the same guy. He struggled with depression and anxiety and would have severe mood swings. He started having arguments with his bosses and found it difficult to keep a job. He soon joined his dad, Dan, in his painting business. He and his dad were not just father and son or co-workers, but they were actually best friends, too. In May of 2013, Ramsey's dad fell, fell ill and was diagnosed with a terminal illness. He was sent home after spending 12 days in the hospital to essentially die in the comfort of his own home. So sad. That's really sad. His wife, Ramsey's mother, Donna Scrivo, was a registered nurse and was tasked with being his caregiver. The hospital sent her home with two vials of morphine to help control Dan's pain. Less than 24 hours after being sent home, Dan Scrivo succumbed to his illness and passed away. When the coroner arrived, it was discovered that one of the vials of morphine was missing. Donna suggested that Ramsey took it to try to kill himself, since he seemed to be taking his father's death so hard. This is within hours, though, of his dad yeah, dying.
0: Right. How is he supposed to take it?
1: Right. Um, he was distraught and struggled with depression and thoughts of suicide, but denied taking the morphine. In fact, he got really defensive and actually accused Donna of overdosing his dad on purpose by administering too much of the medicine. Mm. Donna explained this away to authorities as a delusional outburst, which she said Ramsey had been prone to since his head injury. Oh, no. She had him admitted to the hospital for a psych evaluation that day.
0: Like, this is the the day day that his his dad dad died. died. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God.
1: They drew blood while he was there and confirmed that he had no morphine in his system. They also released him after a mental evaluation. So they gave him the clear.
0: So... It's just crazy to me that the day that his dad died, she had this done. Like, that's a red flag to me. I feel like she was, you know, how people can behave ridiculously when they're like stressed or upset. Mm -hmm. I feel like this was just her behaving badly because she didn't know how to process that her husband had just died. Maybe weird.
1: Maybe, maybe, or the setup of something bigger to come. Um. So Ramsey returned home, but he and his mom were not getting along. Obviously, I probably wouldn't be there. Fuck you, bitch. Right. At this time, he was basically accusing her of murder. um, And she was insistent that he needed serious mental help. She had him admitted again and convinced the hospital and the powers that be to grant her guardianship of her 32 year old son, Mm Ramsey. He was to be under her constant watch. He was also prescribed antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds that included Xanax. Xanax can be a great drug, but it can also be very dangerous.
0: I take Xanax, not like daily, but when I have to fly or when I'm
1: you having a to panic calm attack. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so maybe a couple of times a month, but not in it,
1: high doses, though. Yeah. Right. So
0: yeah, it's definitely. I couldn't imagine. It, that's not what it's for. It's it's to take the edge, edge off when right. you're about to have a heart attack because right. you're so stressed out. Right. It's not um, to be taken in big and doses. any drug, when you abuse it, is it's dangerous. dangerous. 100%. So, yeah.
1: Oranges are dangerous when you... Are
0: they... Can get you get me. vitamin C overdosed?
1: I don't know. Too much of a good thing can always be bad. True. Anyway. But his mother was the one to administer it to him. So she was the one that would give him the pills, his right. medicine daily. Mm-hmm. Um, in June of 2013, so about a month after Dan Scribo died, the family home caught on fire. Donna made it out safely, but not Ramsey. He was trapped in the basement. Oh, no. Thankfully, though, firefighters were able to pull him out of the fire and give him treatment. They, find, they did find that he had high levels of Xanax in his system and began to question him. Huh. He was suspected of being suicidal and was evaluated once again. Mm. But he was not suicidal, so says the doctors, and Ramsey was released back to his mother's care. And
0: Ramsey didn't have possession of the Xanax. He did not.
1: Mm. Donna gave it to him.
0: Mm -mm -mm. I don't (laughs) know about
1: you, Donna. Now the red flags are getting a little redder, aren't they? Yes. Um, Donna and Ramsey moved into a condo while the family home was being renovated and repaired from the fire. They lived together there for about seven months, where neighbors say they could hear them argue constantly, and police were called frequently to resolve disputes between the two. But nothing was ever really done because Donna had guardianship over Ramsey. Police just saw it as a case of a doty mother trying to care for her mentally ill son. Mm. On January 27th, 2014, Donna went to the St. Clair Shores Police Department and reported Ramsey missing. She stated that he left for a walk around 6:30 the night before and she had not seen him since. She tried calling him many times but he never returned her calls and he was not answering. She was worried he was trying to hurt himself or that if he was lost he was going to die in the winter elements. So I don't know if you remember 2014 but that's the year like we were introduced to the polar Correct. vortex.
0: I do because guess what we did in 2014? We got pet ducks. Oh, they died that spring. They They did not die Uh somehow. We had them in like an indoor shed. Our heat, we had a space heater out there Mm -hmm. that I was positive was going to burn it down.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Our heating bill every month that winter was over $700. (gasps) And that was our last winter with ducks. So, yes, I remember how cold it was. Every morning, every morning when my husband went to let the dogs out, I would say, Look and see if the ducks are dead.
1: Oh my gosh. Yuck. Yuck duck. Okay. <laughs> and also, pet ducks are a bad idea. Don't get them. Right, unless you're on a farm. No, or even... you live on a pond. Yeah. Um, okay, so police started looking into his disappearance and investigating all different kinds of leads. On January 30th, which is three days after Donna reported him missing, someone reported a sp- suspicious middle-aged woman throwing trash bags out of her white or tan blazer... Like a vehicle, so it was white or tan, SUV. could have been a blazer. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were throwing bags out of the window on the side of the road in mm-hmm. St. Clair County, which is about 50 miles northeast of Detroit. So okay. it was about 40 miles from where they St. Clair lived. Shores is, right?
0: That's confusing, but St. Clair County, St. Clair Shores, totally yes,
1: different, totally different. Okay. Yes, um. When police arrive to the scene of the trash bags, they find the worst thing possible. I'm going to just step back here and give a warning. If you are not okay with gruesome details, you need to skip ahead. This is graphic. It's disgusting. I'm going to skip ahead. (laughs) Okay. In the bag, a human head and torso. The hair on the head was slightly charred, as was the neck. The torso and head were not attached, and the chest was missing. In total, eight bags were found that included multiple dismembered body parts. One bag had the chest that had been bisected, mm. which basically means it's cut into two parts and, like, opened at the chest cavity. Why? Um, the organs were missing from it and found in a different bag as well. Mm. Um, a saw, blades, clothing, and matches were also found. After an autopsy was performed, authorities confirmed that the dismembered remains belonged to Ramsey Scrivo. Oh, my God. But what they couldn't confirm was who was the woman that was seen tossing these bags to the side of the road. I bet I know. Yeah. It didn't take long for police to find footage, like surveillance footage, mm-hmm. of Donna Scrivo in the area where the bags were found at a gas station and at a local hardware store buying a fucking saw. Um and guess what she was driving A Ford Bronco Lake <laughs> OJ. No. sorry a tan Chevy blazer. Oh my God. yeah, it would have been it would have behooved her to have a Ford Bronco at this time. um but it was not a Bronco. It was that Chevy blazer. Mm. Um, just like the one that was seen when the trash bags were dumped on the side of the road. Oh, my God. So I watched the footage of the police telling Donna that the remains found in the bags were Ramsey's. Let me just save some... I, I, I'm not even going to go there, but her response seemed so emotionless. Not that of a mother who just found out that her child was not just dead, but murdered and chopped into pieces.
0: Ugh. I... I have to say, though, and I've said this to people before, and I usually say it jokingly. Mm -hmm. um, If something awful were to happen to someone in my life, I would probably be one of the first suspects due to my reaction. Um, We've been in panic mode so many times, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with my son through his epilepsy and through other things that – People just process trauma differently. Of course. Um, And I've been like in the ambulance on the way to the hospital joking with the EMTs. Do I feel like I'm dying inside? Yes. Am I about to go home and take that Xanax once we get cleared? Yes. But my reaction is always so poor. Even recently when I had my own accident, I Mm -hmm. think it downplays like the seriousness of things because I'm quickly joking. I think you even said that to me. Right. You're like, you must be OK. You're joking. I was like, right. no, I'm dying. Right. But it's almost a coping mechanism. It is. So I always cringe when I hear that. Like, you know, they didn't react how they were supposed to because I I will be that person that will never react the way you would think I would in like a given situation.
1: I see that. Um, This was. Weird, though. It was cold. It was very cold. It wasn't, like, questionable. It was just, is there a soul in there? Huh. So it was very, I'm like you. Like, I am calm before the storm. Yeah. You know, like, I will cry in private. I will be bothered later. But when I'm first getting the info or it's, like, the emergency is happening, Mm -hmm. I'm calm. I have to be collected to get control. Right. So I could see that being the case, but this was very soulless. Okay. Um, And while police were asking her questions about her whereabouts and if she was involved in the murder, she quickly denied it. She had no involvement whatsoever in her son's murder, at least not until she was recorded talking to her sister from jail. She claimed that she came to Ramsey's room one afternoon and there was a man in a black ski mask standing over Ramsey in bed, strangling him. He pointed a gun at Donna and told her to do what he said. Allegedly, he forced Donna to go buy a saw, and then he dismembered Ramsey's body in the bathtub.
0: That was her story that she came up with? That
1: was her story to her sister. Mm. The masked man then forced Donna to bag up Ramsey's remains and dump them on the side of the road. Oh, my God. When police conducted a search of the condo, they immediately noticed a small smell of a small, a strong smell of bleach. Hmm. Um, they saw signs of bleach on the carpet in Ramsey's room. And there were char marks in the tub and cleaning products caked to the bottom of the vacuum. Hmm. But Donna maintained she did not kill Ramsey and that the masked man forced her to help with the murder of her disabled son. I call bullshit. Right. And so did the police. Donna Scribo was charged with first-degree murder for the death of her 32-year-old son, Ramsey Scriveo. Police alleged that she'd simply had enough. They say she drugged Ramsey with a very heavy dose of Xanax so he couldn't fight, so he couldn't fight her when she decided to attack. Which makes sense um, that she would need to drug him because he was 200 plus pounds and she was like 120 to 130 oh my pounds, God. so she would need to. Drug him to overpower him. Right. Um, She strangled him with an unidentified object and broke his Adam's apple.
0: Oh, my God.
1: I know. Once he was dead, she dragged him into the bathroom where she dismembered his body in the tub and attempted to set his body parts on fire. How? I don't know. I don't know. She bagged up the pieces of him and dumped him on the side of the road 50 miles from home. It was also discovered during investigations that Donna had attended a high school reunion in Texas and reconnected with a high school boyfriend that she started having an affair with. Once her husband was gone and she didn't have the burden of Ramsey anymore, she could move to Texas to be with her new boyfriend. So this affair started while her husband was still alive. Oh, did it? Yes. And if you (laughs) Facebook stalk her page, you can see pictures from that reunion. Oh, my gosh. That was really bizarre to see. Um, Donna Scribo was found guilty of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. At her sentencing, she was quoted saying, I'm not mother of the year and I have multiple problems. I think I did everything to protect the rest of my family.
0: What a psychopath. What an
1: asshole. Yeah, (laughs) or that. To this day, Donna maintains the story of the masked man, The boyfriend has no current communication with her, and most of her family won't even acknowledge her. Many of them still post on Ramsey's social media pages about missing him and writing tributes to him when his birthday comes every year. But no mention of Donna. Ugh. How awful. Isn't that sad? That's really sad. I can't, like...
0: I can't even. No. I don't... I mean, I don't understand murder as a practice in general. Um, But I don't understand how someone could become that – I mean, do do you just become crazed? I don't – so murdering someone in the heat of the moment or even making that decision, which is what it sounds like she did and it's premeditated, but then how do you dissect a body? How do you dissect your child's body? That is insane to me. The biggest part for me that I'm –
1: really trying to grasp is when my daughter has a stuffy nose, like I'm heartbroken for her. I don't, yeah. I would do anything to take that away and be the one sick. Yeah. And I just, you know, and that's a stuffy nose. That's something that you can get through. But I can't imagine any, like, inflicting any type of pain. It's just. Right. It's People something crazy. that I, yeah, I can't relate on any level to it at no. all.
0: No, no. I think that's why these stories are so hard to tell.
1: They are. They're difficult.
0: And on that note, um I'm going to apologize in advance because my story today is incredibly disturbing, even for a true crime story. Um this is one that actually came in as a listener suggestion from Deadhead Tammy Austin. Hi Tammy. Hi Tammy. Uh, This story involves a distant cousin of Tammy's. She said that growing up she would hear whispers about it or when her family drove past the house where the crime happened, her mother would say, you know, oh, there's the house, that's where it happened. Uh, It wasn't until Tammy was older that she found out what it was. And it is terrible. Uh, It's their family tragedy, their family secret, and their family mystery all rolled into one. And... I got this information. I was only able to find one in-depth article on it. It's from the Battle Creek Inquirer from September 9th of 1941, uh, way back when they didn't even put the names of the reporters on the articles. (laughs) So (laughs) I can't give credit there, unfortunately. Um, And then a lot of the rest of the information I pieced together myself um, through different types of research. So Grace Preston, was born to Lester and Mary Preston in July of 1908. She was one of four children. The Preston family lived in Fremont, Michigan, which is a small town about two hours northwest of Lansing near the Huron-Manistee National Forest. Okay. In 1930, when she was 22, Grace married Ronald Brake, the son of a prominent political family in Michigan. A year later, on October 25, 1931, Ronald died suddenly of apoplexy. What's that? As we call it today, a stroke. Oh. I'm thankful they changed the name because I don't think I said that right. Who could? Um, He was 32. A widow at 23, Grace moved south to Hastings, which is a town of about 7,000 people an hour due west of Lansing, so exactly west. Mm -hmm. Um, She was a nurse at a local hospital there, and on New Year's Day, 1937, she married uh, a machine shop owner by the name of Vern DeMott. Their first child, Mary Grace, was born two years later. Their second daughter, Bonnie Lou, was born two years after that. In 1941, the DeMots lived in a large cement block house on East Clinton Street in Hastings, a house that Grace inherited from her first husband's estate, which meant the deed was in her name only. Vern and Grace were both 33, Mary Grace was 2, and Bonnie Lou was just 5 months old. Grace was said to be a doting mother who took impeccable care of her daughters. She was so invested in their care, in fact, that a housekeeper had to come to the house two to three times a week to help with chores because Grace was too busy with the kids. Vern owned a machine and welding shop, DeMott's Machine Company, that he opened with his younger brother, Ralph. But when Ralph enlisted in the army, the responsibility of keeping the machine shop afloat fell to Vern, and he began working long, irregular hours which caused tension between him and Grace. He was often late for supper, if he even came home at all, and he spent very little time with Grace and the children. She felt that his absence from the home reflected a lack of devotion to his family, and she accused him of misconduct and infidelity. According to Vern, he was just trying to make his plant a money maker, and didn't realize the toll his work was taking on his marriage until it was too late even though he'd been advised by the family doctor two years prior that he needed to spend more time at home. Saturday, September 6, 1941, was a happy day in the DeMont household. Vern arrived home from work early, he spent time with the girls, and he helped Grace can peaches. The following morning, Vern and Grace got into an argument when he informed her that he had a lot of work to do and he would have to spend most of the day at the shop. He left the house around 8 a.m. after Grace refused to make him breakfast. Later that afternoon, Grace left the girls with a neighbor and drove to the shop, which was less than half a mile from the house. Literally a two-minute drive. I mapped okay. it. Wow. The house is still there. Oh. So. Oh. oh. Um, she asked Vern if he would be home for supper, and he told her he had too much work to do. She asked, when can you come home? And he told her, I don't know. According to Vern, he worked late into the evening. Since he had work to do early the next morning, he decided to sleep at the shop. Mm -hmm. So he slept in his work clothes on top of cardboard cartons on the floor. No. Even though his warm bed, a hot shower, and clean clothes were literally two minutes away. No. There was an affair. Right. According to Vern, he woke up at about 6.30 on the morning of Monday, September 8th. He took two tractors he was trying to sell out to Dowling, a small farming town about 10 miles south of Hastings, and then stopped at a client's farm to repair some broken machinery. It was 3.30 in the afternoon before he found the time to run out home, as he put it. So at this Mm. point, according to Vern's story, he's been gone from the home for a day and a half, when again, his shop is two minutes from his house. Right. Uh. I just want to keep pointing that part out. (laughs) He said he arrived home to find his wife's car in the garage and all of the doors and windows locked. When Grace didn't answer the door, he entered the house through the cellar window, which they used as a coal chute. He called for Grace, but she didn't answer. He searched the first and second floor of the home, but found no sign of Grace or the children. When he opened the door that led to the attic, he found fresh footprints in the dust that had collected on the wooden stairs. He climbed the stairs just enough that he could see into the attic. Grace and Bonnie Lou were lying on the floor covered in blood. Oh, no. Mary Grace was face down on an old table also covered in blood. Vern ran from the house in a panic. When he encountered a neighbor, he said, I think my wife and kids are dead. You think? Then... Instead of trying to call nine one one or trying to help his wife and daughters, he drove right to the coroner's office. Yeah, but did they have like a nine one one system then? They I don't might know. not. I don't. Think but he they drove did. to the coroner's office. I know that's weird. And if you think they're dead, wouldn't you check and see if you could help them first? I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. So, um, the coroner, Doctor Fisher, had been Verndamat's family doctor for years, and he said to Doctor Fisher, and I quote. I can't believe my eyes, but I think my wife and children are dead. Like that's just weird. Their lingo is. I can't weird back believe then. my eyes. The coroner gathered up a posse of whatever police officers he could find and headed to the Demat home. Within hours, and without holding a coroner's inquest, as was standard in murder cases, Doctor Fisher declared. Beyond any question, this is a case where a woman repressed within herself a fear that her husband considered his work more important to him than his home. Finally, she could stand it no longer, hence the emotional outburst. So, he was a coroner and a psychiatrist and a psychic. And a detective. And a detective. Because like- this all was decided within hours. Wow. Okay, here's where it gets really awful. Okay. According to authorities, here's what happened. Grace awoke on the morning of September 8th and dressed both girls in little white dresses. She put red ribbons in Mary Grace's hair. She was canning peaches at the stove when she, quote unquote, suffered an outburst of hysteria. She went to the cellar and got an axe that her husband used for splitting kindling wood. From the kitchen, she took a dagger-pointed paring knife and a long-bladed butcher knife. She took the girls, both barefoot, to the attic where Mary Grace liked to hide and play among the treasures stored there. She placed little Bonnie Lou on the floor, then held two-year-old Mary Grace down on the table and used the axe to bludgeon her to death. Once her toddler was dead, she turned to the baby, who was lying face-up on the floor at the end of the table, She struck Bonnie Lou several times with the axe and used the butcher knife to slit her throat. Then, Grace climbed up onto the table and attempted to hang herself from the remnants of a child's swing that once hung from the attic's rafters. But the rope didn't tighten around her neck, so she used the butcher knife to cut herself free. She then stabbed herself seven times in the throat and chest. Have you ever... I'm going to call bullshit here. In your life, heard of someone stabbing themselves to death? Uh-uh. Like multiple stab wounds.
1: If she had like cut her wrists or something, that'd be one thing, but something doesn't sound right.
0: She was still wearing the same blue and white print dress she'd had on the day before when she dropped the girls off to the neighbor to go check up on Vern at work. So she got the girls up th- that morning and dressed them in nice new dresses. Mm-hmm. But But she slept in a dress and still had it on the next day. Right. The day after the suspected murder-suicide, Senator Hale Brake, the brother of Grace's deceased first husband, received a suicide note from Mary that said, By the time you receive this letter, I will be no more. The letter substantiated the coroner's theory and the case was closed. She had a burst of hysteria. How... If you have a burst of hysteria... How do you have it in you to write a letter? Write a letter to your ex-brother-in-law and Mm -hmm. mail it to him before you kill yourself and your children. That's not how bursts of hysteria work. Right. Um, Grace, Mary Grace, and Bonnie Lou DeMott were buried together at the Dayton Cemetery in Dayton Center, a little town up near Grace's hometown of Fremont. Vern DeMott lived a long, tragic life. He never remarried. He never had any other children. And he died at the age of 98 on June 17, 2006. And I call bullshit on this whole entire story. I agree. So does Vern's own family, by the way. Wow. It's rumored that Grace was planning to leave him, and that pretty little house they lived in was hers. So the argument could definitely be made that he had a motive. Um, his family has always believed that he got away with the perfect crime, but I don't think there was anything perfect about it. Mm-hmm. It was super messy. Like, right. Right. the alibi, you slept on your floor at work when your house was two seconds away. Mm-hmm. He had a motive. What motive did she have? That wasn't a burst of hysteria. If she had a burst of hysteria, she didn't have time to do a suicide note and mail it at that. Right. Um and then the fact that she was wearing the same dress as the day before. And he was wearing the same clothes as the day before still, too. Right. It's all nonsense to me.
1: Uh-huh. I agree.
0: And that is the story of Grace DeMott of
1: Hastings. That's a sad story. Yeah. I don't believe that she did it, though. Same. So, you want to do file though? Can we? Okay, yeah. Um, we are going to tell you about our favorite teacher's.
0: You go ahead. You go first today.
1: Okay. Obviously, we've had many teachers.
0: We probably even had a few together. Maybe. Possibly.
1: I have one that absolutely sticks out. She was my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. White. Okay. She was awesome. Um, We still kind of keep in touch. We're actually Facebook friends. How fun. I know. I was 10. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just love her to death. She was kind of the grandmotherly type. I don't think she ever had her own children either, Mm -hmm. and she was just a very maternal person, and she encouraged people. She never shot anybody down. I had enough teachers that did that, Mm -hmm. Um, but she was one of those ones that was like, you can do what you want to do. Awesome. Yeah. I loved her. Hi, Mrs. White.
0: Hi, Mrs. White. Mm -hmm. Um, So mine was actually my kindergarten teacher. Mrs. Edlin uh, at Pleasant View Elementary School. So she was just so fun. She was such a fun lady. Obviously, you know, I was – my mom was a stay-at-home when I was little. Mm-hmm. So she was my first experience really spending quality time with a woman that wasn't my mom. Um, but she was just so – she was everything that you would think a kindergarten teacher should be. Right. Um and then, you know, over the years when I would run into her, she always remembered me. Even still, um, funny, her grandson and my youngest son went to preschool together. Stop, that's funny. <laughs> so then I saw her at like when they would have programs Aww, and their little so graduation cute. and stuff. And she always remembered me, you know, like obviously I've changed a lot since I was five. Right. <laughs> I would think <laughs> and I have this really long 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 be- like down to my butt beautiful like shiny hair when I was little mm-hmm. um, and so every time I see her she's hi Jennifer still calls me Jennifer and gives me like a big hug and always comments on whatever stage my hair is in mm-hmm. you know look at your hair <laughs> yeah. like, and, like, that long hair is obviously what she remembers yeah. I love those teachers yeah, yeah. she was great Thank you guys so much for making us a part of your day. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon at SoDeadPodcast. You can also find us online at
1: SoDeadPodcast.com. And email us your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. Now get out there and shine. You magnificent what the fucks.